Well, we've been working through this uh, series over these past few weeks. Um, it's actually nine weeks. We've managed to get nine weeks out of seven deadly sins, which isn't bad going. But as you look at it, uh, as we consider some of the issues, I think the song that we've just sung really captures, um, in the conversations that I, I've had with a number of folks, that sense of, I guess, the, the awe and the power uh, of sin. Uh, and that sense of, as we see, or we'll see in a few minutes, uh, even the Apostle Paul reaches that point of desperation when he sees the opposition that is not outside of him, but actually is within him. He starts to become so deeply conscious of what he is like inside. Now, the medieval historian, theologians down through the years, they've been... Um, I guess in some ways it's been um, misrepresented, in other ways it's been taken in a wrong direction. We don't want to make too much of these seven deadly sins, other than it is a helpful way for us to deal with this, this spectrum of the issue that we find inside of us. We've considered pride, envy, lust, sloth, greed, gluttony and wrath. Uh, and when we see that spectrum, um, that, that really, uh, it, we all, in being honest with ourselves and being honest before the Lord, all of us would say that perhaps there are areas of that, perhaps there are areas that we might not feel that we struggle so much with. But all of us will be able to say, deep down, whether people around us know it or not, and that's important, isn't it? You might, you might be sat here, I might be here this afternoon thinking there will be many people who do not know, in fact the majority of people, who don't know the way that I struggle with X or Y or Z. Uh, it's deep down. That tells us, doesn't it? Doesn't that just emphasise for us that the battle with sin is not an outside battle, although it is to some extent. The majority of the battle is actually deep down inside. Jesus said this. He said it's what's inside of us is the issue. Uh, and then when we look at that and when we consider the lives that we live, what we find is that uh, the phrase being a deadly sin is actually quite appropriate, isn't it? We find ourselves the living dead in the power of sin over us. Every one of those uh, issues that we've just described, every one of those categories, which, which there's grey areas where they start to overlap and, and it is a spectrum. But every one of us, every one of those, with our own particular issues, we find, don't we, that it's, each one of them, they suck life out of us. They, they drain us, they, they pull out of us. You know, the issue of pride, for example, is not an issue which is um, exalting to us ultimately it doesn't we feel as though it does we want to exalt ourselves but actually it is self-destructive that's one of the things that we find it it drags out of us it becomes something which pulls and draws and sucks out of us it saps us uh, and so we become the living dead we realize that as the bible describes we are truly slaves to sin we are dead men and women walking, captured by this power. We feel the weight of it and we live as those who are dead under that weight. At least, in some sense, I hope we do. 
I hope we feel that. I hope we have a consciousness that this is an issue for us. I hope we are able to look into the reality of the mirror of the Bible and say this is where we are. You know, one of the things that the Bible continually does for us is it tells us the truth. And it's great to know the truth. You know, it would be a terrible thing to have not been warned about Hurricane Irene for some of those folks over in America. It is better to know the truth, isn't it? To pretend that it's not there would be disastrous. Uh, and one of the, we, we think, don't we, sometimes, and maybe you're sat here thinking, all this talk of sin, feel really uncomfortable with it, because it seems so, it seems so counterproductive. It, it draws all of our self-esteem. It makes us less of a people. I, I just want to suggest to you that perhaps, rather than looking at it as something that sucks away from us, this is God's greatest provision for us, that he tells us the truth. Because then we can do something. Then we can respond to that issue. In the film Magnolia, one of the ways that that story unfolds is we realise that sin, although it is an individual issue, it has an impact generation to generation to generation to generation. We find that the things that people do are actually tremendously impacted by what has gone before, by, by what fathers and mothers have done before. And then we realise actually this insidious power of sin is, is not just an individual thing, but it, it impacts other people as well. So we become both perpetrators and victims. The Bible says that, you know. The Bible says this, God says this, do you know what? You shall not bow down and worship to other gods, for I the Lord, your God, I am a jealous God. And I will punish the children... For the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. You say, hang on a sec. Are you saying that God will bring a, a judgment on the children because of what the fathers have done and what the mothers have done? That's what the Bible says. And actually when we look around in life we realise that that is exactly what happens, isn't it? That is exactly what happens. What is God's judgment in that sense? Is it an active judgment? Or is it him just saying, do you know what? I will back away. I will step back. And I will allow it to run its course. And the outcome of what happens in that generation will be felt in that generation and in that generation. Because I will not intercede. I will allow it to, to pass from one generation to one generation to one generation. And we would say, do you know what that means? <laughs> Doesn't it? That sin seems undefeatable. It seems, humanly speaking, it is undefeatable. I find that what I am, no matter how hard I try, I find that I cannot break this. I find that not only that, but the impact, as I look around this world, I see that the impact of one generation's behaviour impacts the next, impacts the next, impacts the next. And I would say, I suddenly find myself in the shoes of the Apostle Paul where he said this, 
For in my inner being I delight in God's law. What's he saying there? He's saying, do you know what? For all of who I am, for all of the issues of the world, I would say this. God's pattern, God's law is right. I love it. I wish it was like that. I delight in that. But I see another law at work in me. And it's waging war against everything that I would want to be. I find that I, I, find that I want to be living in accordance with God's law. I know that it's a beautiful thing. I know that it's a right thing. But I realize that I end up living differently. Do you, do you feel the dilemma? Do you feel the crisis of that? Do you feel the sense of crisis that he's just opening up? He says, I want to be that, but I find that I am that. I find that I am a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Exactly what we were saying a minute ago. He finds that he's a prisoner. I'm bound by this. I'm just bound by it. It's got me. It's undefeatable. I cannot defeat it. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? That's where he gets to. I want to ask from this passage that we've been looking at in the Bible this afternoon. Is there a sense in which there is any hope for humanity? Is there any way that this undefeatable can be defeated? One of the great things about the narratives of the Bible is that we see contained in them, we see patterns of behaviour which we can relate to. I think that's one of the great things that we see. And we turn to this now in Exodus chapter 17. And we see that the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. That's just those few verses in isolation. You would think, well, it's fair enough, isn't it? They're in the desert. And, um, and the reality is that they are going to be short of water. Therefore, to be uh, discouraged, to be angry, to quarrel, to oppose is the, is the sense of the word there. To kind of really oppose Moses uh, and to quarrel with him about water seems reasonable. Apart from this, apart from this, these very people have already known a tremendous outpouring of God's blessing. He has already brought them miraculously out of Egypt. They have known um, a salvation from vile, horrible persecution and imprisonment and beatings and murders. They have known vile opposition miraculously being turned over so they have been rescued from Egypt. Secondly, they have already experienced that God has provided them with water in the desert. Thirdly, they have already experienced that God has provided them with food when it seemed as though there was no food. So we have the manna has already been provided for God's people. What are we seeing here? We are seeing a group of people who God has saved, a group of people who, whose God, God's blessing has been poured out on and they have They've experienced it, not once, not twice, but three times and other times, but three distinct moments of 
incredible blessing from God, and yet we find them again at this point quarreling and opposing Moses. And here's the thing. What goes on inside eventually spills out, doesn't it? What's going on inside spills out at this moment in time. They are bent out of shape. They are feeling upset. They are feeling angry. And it all comes out in opposition to Moses. This isn't a problem manufactured by the lack of water. This is a problem of the heart. An opposition. A stubbornness. These are God's people who have already been saved. Who are quarrelling again. And you know, part of me thinks, I am so glad that God has been so kind to show people like this as his people. Because I know that I can be like this. Don't you? I know that no matter how much God blesses me, what goes on inside here erupts out every now and then. In, in anger and frustration and, and discouragement and bitterness and problems. Most people don't see it, <laughs> but I know what goes on. And I'm, I'm in the I've got the opportunity here to be honest for all of us and say that's what we're like, isn't it? We, we get to the point that even though we can say, I can look back in time and I can say, that happened and it was incredible, it was miraculous, it was marvellous, it was God's provision, but I'm here now and I'm frustrated. Do you relate to that? These people who, who are in opposition to Moses... There's another twist that comes out as we see the story unfold because Moses replies to them in this way. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Why do you put the Lord to the test? Why does he say that? Because Moses recognises and knows that he is on God's mission. What he has done is taken the people out of Egypt and is, is guiding the people, not according to his direction, but according to God's direction. So if you've got a problem with me, your reality is you've got a problem with God, haven't you? That's where it really is. And in that moment, we can see that this group of people fit all of the criteria. For being slaves of sin. Aren't they? What we've just been talking about. They're captured by it. It keeps coming out. It's what they are. It's what Paul says. I find that I want to do certain things. And yet I do other things. But that is what I am. What is sin? It's living in this world. With a determined enthronement. Of myself. As opposed to God. It's saying I will live here. And I will live. Determined to believe. That my way of doing things. Is the right way. My standards. My objectives. My pattern for life. What are these people saying? They are saying effectively. God you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. We shouldn't be here. Yet again without water. You've got it wrong. We should have water. 
we should have provision. The fact that you've provided for us in the past, that's the past. You've got it wrong again. And in that, I think that that spirit, that heart, captures just about every aspect of those seven deadly sins. It, it speaks to the world today and it says, There's, here's our problem. We live now determined that our pattern, our pathway, our standards, our views, our experiences are correct. And every time that God challenges us, every time that God says, your way is not correct, we are determined to say, you are wrong. You are wrong. I will enthrone myself and dethrone the God who made me and the God who created this whole universe. I will oppose you. I will stand in your face. I will quarrel against you. That's how strong that word quarrel is. It's, it's not just a, a kind of a little tiff. It's that, it's that nose-to-nose, violent confrontation that says you are wrong. That's where we find the people and we live in exactly the same way we live with this we live with this as our problem and so we would say if we're able to step back because we have the benefit of a few thousand years we know how the story has unfolded we're able to step back aren't we and we can see the behavior of these people does part of us say what's up with you what are you, what are you complaining about You've seen God's provision on three occasions, haven't you? Don't you know that he's going to provide for you again? Don't you trust him? Don't you believe that he's going to do exactly what is necessary for you? We can sit here and we can say, surely, surely you can't be angry. We can see that. But what we would say, therefore, in saying that, wouldn't we be effectively saying, you're guilty. You are in the wrong. <laughs> what does God do? For guilty people who he saved. How does God deal with this? I think the next few verses are astounding really. Firstly we see that the people's response is so twisted. So bent. So perverted. That they've reached the point where they can look. I mean we can talk about rose tinted glasses can't we. Looking back in time. And we all do it. You know we all think that when we were kids. Life was so much easier. Uh, or we all think that when we were kids. You know we, we didn't have nothing to play with. But we made games out of cardboard boxes. And all of that kind of jazz you know. Here's the people saying do you know what back in Egypt. <laughs> It was just so much better. It was just so much better. Well, we've got short memories. Back in Egypt, you were being flogged because you weren't able to produce the number of bricks demanded of you because you didn't even have sufficient materials given to you. Talk about unfairness. And yet you are now able to say it was better back in Egypt. Let's face it, folks, we live with twisted views when we are determined that our view is correct. We can twist anything. We can pervert anything to persuade ourselves that our way is right. 
Egypt would have been better. What does God do with that kind of guilt? Look at what happens. Look at how the story unfolds. Moses goes to the Lord. What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me, he says. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. That's what God says to He says basically, that he says this right now. Let's get ourselves an understanding of what's going. Take the rod, or take the staff, uh, as we see here. It, we've heard of Moses' rod, Moses' staff. It's, if we go back in, in the story, what we find is it's this staff which he, which he held, which became a symbol of the authority of God. Every time one of the plagues were brought on the Egyptian people, it was the authority of God which was symbolic, symbolically being displayed by the staff. When they came to the Red Sea and, and it was parted, it was symbolically, it was the staff, the authority of God, which was present and was displayed as the power which brings that. It's the justice statement of God. Interestingly, the rod has become... Uh, throughout history in different contexts it's become a symbol of justice and authority back in the Roman Empire there was a bundle of rods that the emperor used to carry around bound together they were called the fasces which was uh, which where we get fascism actually uh, the word fascism the same root idea this ultimate authority ultimate power and it was carried by the Roman uh, emperor as a symbol of his authority or whoever he gave it to. So uh, you would have various people who would have authority in different jurisdictions who would carry this symbol of a bound uh, bundle of rods. Um, we have even in our own parliament the gentleman usher of the black rod. You know, Black Rod, who goes and he, he bangs on the door of the doors of Parliament. What is that Black Rod? It's a symbol of authority and justice. So God says to Moses, in the face of this opposition, what is key? In the face of the opposition, my justice and my authority are going to play a key part. So take that. Take my justice and my authority into that situation. Now, how would you expect that to work out? <laughs> Here's this picture of justice and authority carried by Moses, which has in the past turned the Nile to blood. In the past, it's parted the sea. In the past, it's produced water out of the rock. And, and what do you think that that power and authority would do in the face of these rebels? Humanly speaking, we would think that the power and authority would be held over the rebels. And the rebels would bear the consequences of the power and the rod, of the rod and the staff. Yeah? That's how we would expect. Now look at what actually God says. He says, now, take that 
symbol of authority. Take the elders with you, make sure everybody knows what is happening, and then some of the most breathtaking words, I think, in Exodus. Then I will stand before you. I will stand before you. That phrase, stand before you, is used 29 times in the Bible. Every time it is used, it is describing somebody or a situation which is standing before the authority of God or somebody else. And God says, I will stand before you. I will stand by the rock or near the rock or in Hebrew virtually with the rock. And then strike the rock. Strike where I am standing with the authority of my justice. Isn't that incredible? What does God do here? I think what he does is he sets another stepping stone in his communication with this whole world where he says this. The way that I deal with rebels is by standing in their place. Look at what happens. He says, take that symbol of authority and I will stand in the path. I will stand in the way of rebels. It should be the rebellious. It should be those who are opposing me. But I will stand in the place. I will be tested. I will see whether my justice, whether my calling, whether what I have brought you to stands up against my justice. God says, I'll stand there. I'll stand in the way. And then you hold that over me. And what happens when the justice of God is held over God, blessing pours out. Because water pours out of the rock. Isn't that astounding? When God holds his justice, when he stands in the way of the rebel, blessing pours out because fresh water pours out for all of those who were at that point in time rebelling against God who were standing opposed to him God says you can test me you can try me I will stand in your place of those who deserve justice to be uh, poured over them and I will pour out blessing now where does that take us how does God therefore deal with sin for those who are saved by him. Remember that. These are people who have been saved by him. He's been they've been taken out of Egypt. They've been taken out. They are his people. You sit here and I sit here saying, I, I find that I continue to live the way I ought not to live. I find that no matter what I do, I continue to do the things I ought not to do. I stand with the Apostle Paul and I find myself condemned. What does God say? 
Well, actually, he says, here's a little picture for what's to come. Because there's going to be another point at which I will stand under my justice. And you can bring that justice and strike me down again at the cross. Where the justice of God stands consistent. That's the beauty of this. The justice and the authority of God is not ripped apart. It's not destroyed. It's not broken. It stands consistent. It stays there and it says it still remains with the authority that it has. And it will always have. But God stands as the one who bears it. And there's a point at which Jesus, the son of the living God, stands in the face of the rod of God again on the cross. And that rod doesn't just strike a rock. It strikes his son. It's brought down with unquestionable power. With unquestionable authority. With absolute justice. It is brought down on his son. And Jesus bears that. And in that. Every one of us in this room this afternoon. We find hope. We find hope. We are able to say this, the undefeatable sin is defeated. Not in me. Not when I, can, if, I if you or I continue to try to work out how to defeat this sin, we will go round and round in a downward spiral of despair. Because we will continually be beaten But we find God's pattern laid out here, prepared for us here, and executed at the cross of Jesus is this. I will be the one who will bear the responsibility. I will be the one who will bear the guilt. You can bring down the justice on me and I will be crushed. And at that moment where I am crushed, blessing will pour out. Water pours out at this point. But the blood of Jesus pours out. Hundreds of years later, where we read that his blood cleanses us from all iniquity. Where does Paul go? Where he says, what can I do? What can I do with the person that I am? A wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? What can I do? I find that I continue to live like this. And I want to live like this. What can I do? The answer is this. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Not try harder. Thanks be to God. Who delivers me. Through his son the Lord Jesus Christ. He delivers me. He frees me. He liberates me. The undefeatable is defeated. Not in me, in him. He bears the consequence. 
He bears the authority. He bears the justice. He carries it. Magnolia, to close. That picture of sin passing on from generation to generation. What can stop it? What can stop that endless stream of problem and success and triumph for sin? What can stop it? How can today, how can that be stopped today? The answer is in the timeless effectiveness of the death of Jesus on the cross. It becomes timelessly effective. It's as though that moment, although it was a moment in history, is a moment in eternity in a sense. It's a moment in eternity because it is effective for everybody who was before and it is effective for everybody who has passed. Every who, everybody who looks back at the cross is able to say that works for me because that moment is unique in all of this world's history because it becomes a timeless, eternal moment where we are able to say, and maybe you're not at this point, maybe you are, if you are not at the point of being able to say, I know that I am forgiven, then I would say the cross is the place where you can really know forgiveness. And I know through so many conversations that that is what we really desperately are looking for. Deep down, we need to know that we are forgiven. But I would also say, for those who have walked the Christian pathway two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years, <laughs> we need the same thing. We still need to know that we are forgiven. It carries on. We need to be reminded. And it is the effectiveness of one moment in time where Jesus bears the justice of God and timelessly brings forgiveness and blessing pours out as he is struck. The undefeatable defeated. Seven deadly sins, deadly to humanity, deadly, with a living dead in them, with the eternal dead, without the intervention of the living God. We can't beat it, we'll never beat it, but he has, and he brings eternal forgiveness the guilty that's great hope isn't it